Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Dig down underground now, through the soil, through the cooling clay, as the din fades above you. You're moving, you're secret, you're listening to the latest episode of Columbia House Party. Jake, what's up, man? Not much. How are you doing? Well, I'm sleepy and yawny now because you yawned 50 times in the green room before we came on. I feel like I shouldn't be held accountable for you being tired. I think that's unfair. Yeah. I mean, look, there's at least a little bit of that that's my fault. I mean, yeah, you work harder than I do, so I feel like that's on you. Luckily, I have uh, this tea in a cup with a monkey on it where the monkey's second arm extends out to be the handle of the mug. I've always said that warm tea is a good way to wake yourself up. It has caffeine in it. It's still tea. Tea is sleep drink. No, not for me. Hmm. Maybe if you drink, like, the sleepy tea. Well, yeah. Why would you drink any other tea other than breakfast or sleep tea? Because it tastes good, and I've had too many coffees today, and I don't want to get in trouble from my body for too many coffees. I guess that's fair. It better be fair, Jake. I don't really feel that strongly about this, if I'm being perfectly honest. Yeah, me neither. Uh, I just wanted to give you some slack. I mean, that's or, fair. Uh, give, you some f- give you some flack, rather. Uh, not slack. Give we get some... no slack in here. Well, we don't use slack. We use email. A. Uh, no, the rest of us use Slack. You just don't log into it. Why, yeah, why would you do that, though? I find out what's Clay going on. Clay and Dylan, yeah, because I just pass on what, what Clay and Dylan and Jess put in the uh, in the Slack. I just pass it on to you. That's fine. Who needs to use Slack if you have me as the go-between? Absolutely correct. Wow. Uh, Jake, I have bad news for you as... Uh, as much as we're joking around me carrying things, this is a very Jake episode. You're That's carrying true. all of this bad boy. This is episode 71 of Columbia House Party. Thank you for making it through two minutes of Jake and I taking digs <laughs> at each other. Uh, you know, absence uh, and the heart growing fonder, all that stuff. Thank you so much for following along with us, listening along. Uh, if you are so inclined, patreon.com slash Columbia House Party to support us there. Failing that, please rate, review, subscribe. Tell Jake just how good a job he did on this episode because this is a research-heavy one, a lot of fun background really setting me on up today's here. band. This isn't, this isn't good. It's all on me. This is rude. Well, hey, man, it's a, it's a band I wasn't super familiar with until recently uh, and have gone back and listened to. So uh, I obviously did my research, but I'm excited to go through it with you. A bit of a flimsy connection this time around. 
but that doesn't make it any less essential of an episode. In fact, the essentialness is the connection. Uh, last week we did Tegan and Sarah, and that was a, a great episode, by the way. I had a lot of fun with Lauren uh, from Warriors. Not only did Tegan and Sarah and today's band both have October 26 releases, which thank you for trying to help with the connection there, Jake. <laughs> uh, they also came up on, if you ever use the IndieHead subreddit, there is a, back from late 2013, a what are the essential indie albums that I need to listen to thread. And that list includes now six albums that we've already done and today's album. And we're going to keep it going and do next week's album, too. Unofficially, we've stumbled into the Indie Heads Essential Indie Albums arc uh, without planning it. Jake, what do you have for us today uh, for the Essential Indie Heads? So today I have an album that is considered by many, including myself, to be one of not only one of the best albums of the 90s, but also one of the most important indie albums of all time. Uh, it's an album that is extremely important to me personally, even though it's not my favorite album of this band's. And this band is extremely important to me. I think it's, you could very easily call this band one of my three favorites in the world. And that doesn't change rankings. Uh, I love this band. They are everything I want music to sound like. They are very much in a genre I love a lot. And since we're not ever going to do a Q and not you episode, probably, <laughs> I figured this was a good way to sort of bridge that gap. So today we are talking about the dismemberment plans. Extremely, massively amazing album, Emergency and I. I lost my membership card to the human race. So don't forget the face. Cause I know that I do belong here. Go down the checklist. Let's see if feelings are good. Dishonesty is bad. Accusing inside is worse still. Is what do you want me to say? Uh, Jake, what do you want me to say? This is uh, going to be a fun episode. Again, a, a Jake heavy one because you have a lot of research here and a, a deep personal connection. Before we get into 
the research and, you know, some of the the background and the making of this album and, and of course, its influence coming out of it. Uh, first, I, I guess I should ask for our friend Jacob Kramer. How did he not get the invite on? I, I feel like this is right behind Block Party as like the number one Kramer. Album. <laughs> this actually, uh, Kramer and I have a funny connection with this. When Dismemberment Plan reunited in 2013, or I guess when they released their reun- reunion album, 2013. And a friend of me and Kramer's and I were going to go to New York to see them. And Kramer, sight unseen or band unheard, I should say, was like, yeah, I'll go. And then now they are one of his favorite bands, which I think is funny. Uh, I think the reason Kramer didn't get an invite is because uh, we didn't think to ask him because he's just been earmarked for Block Party and that's what he's going to do. Uh, not to yeah. spoil our yeah. spreadsheet, <laughs> not to spoil our spreadsheet, but one day we're going to do the only Block Party album. So, yeah, uh, yes, because we, we couldn't have him on for two episodes. No, that would be no, no, no. I don't want to get that would be just silly. We haven't we haven't done that for anyone. We're not bringing someone on for a third time next week. Nothing. I like don't want to give him a big head about it or anything. All right. So, Jake, my connection to uh, the dismemberment plan is very similar to Kramer's. I did not catch them at the time, as we've discussed a lot, you know, in that late 90s, early 2000s. I was not into the indie scene. I was, you know, metal and, and um, pop punk and emo and, and then a little bit of uh, even hip hop mixed in there. This stuff from this genre missed me. And it's something that I've gone back to a lot uh, in the last maybe five to seven years, uh, even with a band like The Thermals, who we did a couple episodes ago. And I actually hear some of The Thermals going into Emergency and I uh, and listening to it. Um, I also hear, you know, it, it's always a fun experiment to go back and listen to uh, an older band or an older album, having it, like coming to them where you are already a fan of bands who were influenced by them and you can pick up like, oh yeah, Motion City Soundtrack bought their used Moog synthesizer at a garage sale probably. <laughs> right. Or, you know, you can hear a little thermals in there or even like Incubus uh, a little bit. At some times, um, you know, so it's it's been a cool one to go back to. Not a lot of personal connection on my end, uh, but you have a ton of personal connection to this. One. Yeah, I I missed sort of D plan when they were current. Most I mean, a lot of that is because I was like 11 when this album came out. But uh, I got into them, I guess it would have been right at the beginning of their reunion in I guess it would have been 2010 or 2011. And I don't really remember how I came across them. I'll talk about this when we get to discussing the song, but uh, I listened to them like it was sort of when, when we were doing London Calling and we were kind of talking about how that was an album that sort of changed the way me and Steve considered music. I found Dismemberment Plan very similar for me, they were kind of, I was sort of in this weird phase musically of like, I hadn't yet really come back to the pop punk and emo stuff. I was very much in my like electronic indie alternative phase. And then Dismemberment Plan were kind of this perfect balance in a lot of ways, even though they don't sound like any of the electronic bands I was listening to. But they just kind of bridged that gap really nicely for me. And it was one of those bands that happens to like you get lucky sometimes you hear a band you're just like oh this is everything i've always wanted to hear in music like when i heard post malone cover Hootie and the blowfish today <laughs> yeah exactly oh my god what <laughs> sorry sorry to date this episode but uh but yeah but it was just one of those like big music moments where i knew i was like oh i'm going to 
love this band. And then I did. And it just sort of, they're just, a, they're just a huge, huge band for me. And like what I want all music to sound like, I guess. Yeah, that's great, man. And we're going to get into uh, what they sound like and the specifics of what you're trying to highlight there. We're going to do that after a little break. Also, just uh, yes, the band name is a Groundhog Day joke, mm-hmm. which uh, I watched that movie on Groundhog Day, which <laughs> I sometimes do. And I was like, hey, I'm prepping for a Dismemberment Plan episode right now. There it is. Perfect. It's the Leo meme of pointing at the screen. <laughs> That's the Dismemberment Plan. That's the Dismemberment Plan. All right, we're going to talk about the Dismemberment Plan and Emergency and I after this. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, Jake. So what do you got for us? Okay. So before we get into this, because this is like, I feel like people listen to our show. A lot of you probably know and really like this album because it is kind of a big indie thing. It's too big. So there's like five songs on here that I would consider better than most music that we are not going to talk about. So if we don't talk about one of the songs from this album, you're like, why aren't you talking about that? Just because there's too much and we only have an hour. Anyway, uh, are you are you already <laughs> uh, are you like preemptively responding to Angelo right now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually more preemptively responding to myself because I sent in the run sheet two days ago. And this is the first time where the last two days I've been like, oh, I should have talked about this one instead. Yeah, be the first time that uh, the first time that producer Dylan had to clean up for us for a change. Yeah, on the fly. yeah really. But like, there's just like two of my like all time favorite songs are not getting discussed today. So maybe I'm just a little peaked about it, but it's fine. Well, we can also bring them up. It's well, not, they'll it's come our- up, but we're not. OK, anyway, I have a whole thing written out. All right, man. <laughs> Anyways, continue. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, the Dismemberment Plan were formed on New Year's Day in 1993. They were originally made up of Eric Axelson on bass, Steve Cummings on drums, Jason Cadell on guitar, and Travis Morrison on vocals and guitar. Axelson, Cummings, and Morrison all went to high school together in Burke, Virginia. Uh, as you mentioned, they were named after a stray line in Groundhog Day. Uh, in 1994, they signed to DeSoto Records, one of the great record labels. Uh, and in the liner notes of the vinyl reissue of Emergency and I, uh, it has a huge oral history of this album uh, put together by the AV Club's Josh Medell. I don't know if he's with the AV Club anymore, but uh, a lot of our information today is going to come from that 
oral history. Uh, in that oral history, Kim Coletta, who is the owner of DeSoto Records, said, they wrote me a letter and sent in a seven inch record. That's how we were operating at the time. No email. I went out to Fairfax, Virginia to see them play at the kind of place where you step outside of the club and there's a car going by at 55 miles an hour. They very much started as a literal garage band or house band. Uh, Eric Axelson said in this oral history, we practiced at my mom's house in Springfield, which is a Virginia suburb. And then Axelson's mom, Emily, said of the band, they were always very gracious. They would always say, which nights are you going to be out? Because they knew I had choir practice at church on Wednesdays and I was taking classes at a local university. When I came home, the house would literally be shaking. The band originally played sort of a more noise rock, post-hardcore kind of sound, I'd call it, very much in place with the DC post-hardcore scene that they were a part of. Other bands of that ilk, things like Q and Not You, as I said before, Jawbox, Little Fugazi, the Discord bands, all that good stuff. They released their first album, uh, which is just named Exclamation Point, like a literal exclamation point. It was released on October 3rd, 1995 on DeSoto Records. I really like Exclamation Point, even though it's sort of not, it's a little more abrasive than I think their later stuff would be, uh, but you can still hear a lot of what they'd become. There's a lot of angular guitars. Travis Morrison's lyrics aren't totally refined yet, but they're also very wordy as they always would be. Uh, or as he told Pitchfork in 2013, early dismemberment playing songs are like being hit with a confetti cannon of words. Um, in that Pitchfork interview, Morrison also reflected on the beginnings of the group, saying, I wanted to be a writer when I was a little kid. Then I wanted to be Pete Townsend, the songwriting <laughs> guitarist who occasionally sang. The first six months after forming Dismemberment Plan, I was trying to find another singer. The original idea was that we'd have some pretty boy and I'd occasionally do the feel me, touch me parts. Then when we were about 20, Eric sat me down and said, I know you're not very good at it, but you're going to have to sing. And look what <laughs> happened. It was a different era. Now expectations are more muted. But at the time you would think I want to be Sonic Youth. I want to do it. You would think of it as a career. So we had dreams about being a fairly long lived band. And when we broke up. I was like, oh, we only got to album four. Uh, the name of the band also sort of caused false expectations in the scene. According to Todd Bell, who is the bass player for Braid, another band we should do one day. Uh, he said, yeah, that's a Groff episode, I think. Yeah, I was shocked when Groff came on and didn't insist on Braid, but that's another conversation. Uh, he said, we'd seen a flyer that we were playing with the dismemberment plan, and I immediately assumed we were billed with a metal band. We were unloading, and the band downstairs began to play, and we all just looked at each other like, what's going on down there? I walked down the stairs and saw a left-handed bass player, a left-handed drummer grooving with a rock band, and a lead singer freaking out on the trombone. Which is kind of not dissimilar from what they would stay as. Yeah, I guess the lefty heaviness of the lineup is a little interesting, at least. Oh, we'll be talking about the rhythm section a lot today. All right. And their left-handedness or no? I mean, they are left-handed, but that's neither here nor there. Um, exclamation mark, point, whatever, was moderately well-received. Uh, three out of fives from All Music, Rolling Stone, and Sputnik is what's listed on the wiki. Uh, shortly after the recording of the album was finished, Steve Cummings would leave the band and he was replaced by Jason Easley. And this lineup would stick for the entirety of the band's career. 
1997, they released the dismemberment plan is terrified also on DeSoto. Uh, Jason Easley said of the second album, the first plan record is all over the place. Terrified kind of settles down a bit and it's the next logical step. The lyrics are cohesive and the songs, while still scattershot, are more like actual songs. And this is the part of the show where we highlight the older sound. There are so Hmm. many songs on Terrified that I could pick, but I will pick arguably the band's one of the most popular songs the band's repertoire and my favorite new year's eve song this is the ice of boston and outside two million drunk bostonians are getting ready to sing auld lang sign out of tune Sit there in my easy chair, looking at the clouds, horns with celebration. No wonder if you're out there. Hey, the ice of Boston is muddy and reflects no light. Been take for a night, I slip on it every time. to check out the sadder new year's playlist i put together uh this year that was on there <laughs> i think i there. post That's... i think i posted every december 31st and have as for you like should it's now. a terrific song it's one and one of the most fun like concert sing-along songs as well i have not seen them live but i would imagine yeah and you have three thousand people screaming how's washington it's very fun <laughs> uh so from there this was i guess this is more of a question than than me uh leading here but is was that song uh, obviously there are so many on that album that i mean it's a deep album in general and you said you had trouble picking but was the ice of boston like the song that kind of got them some buzz and some momentum or was it just the album as a whole it was mostly the album as a whole, and it sort of led to this weird period where they almost got buzz but didn't. <laughs> the album's definitely more evolved. In the scene, no way. <laughs> yeah, in the late 90s indie scene, or mid-90s, I guess. Terrified was pretty well received. Uh, Robert Christigau called it surprisingly thoughtful for post-hardcore and said it's sort of the way Primus might sound if Primus enjoyed a normal sex life, which I think is a great quote. To your point and your question, the album was successful enough to get Interscope Records interested in signing the band to a deal. The way it went down was, according to Eric Axelson, we were on tour in May of 97, and Kim told me that the bass player from Blondie was coming to see the show in Allentown, Pennsylvania at a fire hall. He was also the 
A&R rep for Interscope Records. I didn't believe it, but I looked in the crowd and saw this older guy with curly hair who was clearly not a kid from the scene. Uh, Jason Easley would continue, after the show, he talked to me at the merch table, and suddenly there were a lot of phone calls happening. Uh, This was extremely short-lived, as the only piece of music the group actually released on Interscope was the Ice of Boston EP. It was your very typical of the time, like, here's this new band on a major label. Let's put out a song that's already on an album with some extra songs kind of thing. It does contain one of my favorite Dismemberment Plan songs, uh, which is called The First Anniversary of Your Last Phone Call, which is also on the Barsook reissue of Emergency and I. Uh, also just a killer t- song title. Yeah, a great song title, a great song. It's actually the last track on the vinyl, uh, which is a great place for it. We're not talking about it because it's not really that important or interesting, but go look it up because it's great. Uh, Shortly after the release and touring of Terrified, the band began writing what would become Emergency and I. Emergency and I is a odd title for a record, and it has no meaning at all. Travis Morrison said that it just happened right after getting back from New York. I was at the Black Cat in D.C. I was watching Shudder to Think, and it popped into my head. To this day, I don't know what it means. So (laughs) that's what it means. I mean, look, it it's uh, it's fun. It fits the well, not fun, but like it fits the dismemberment plan as a name. It fits the kind of mood and style of music. I don't know. I think it like it's one of those ones that it could sound very intentional. If if he had been like, oh, yeah, I just thought it summed up the album. I would believe him. So it works. It's one of those cool titles that might mean nothing, but I feel like it suits the album really well for some reason. Yeah, like, like it, the it just Sandy's. <laughs> is that a cookie? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's a double entendre, so the kids will kids. pop with it. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, <laughs> no, I I'm warned always, you that I was in a I'm always weird... here for chemical toilet references. Yeah. So. All right. Uh, let's get to Emergency <laughs> and I. Uh, emergency, you, you can't even make my friend more smarter than I. <sighs> That's emergency and I, Jake. All right. Uh, So very much like we're sort of in the beginning, not to date us, we're in the beginnings of MLB spring training and whoever shows up in the best shape of their lives. The writing process, Brindisi and I was one of those. This is the most focused we've ever been kind of narratives. Jason Easley said, we were spending a lot of time in the basement, really digging in individually to make music that sounded like it came from a group. We probably could have had 20 different remix albums if we had put out suitable rough drafts of our songs. I, I love it. The I, we we've been in the gym. We've been in the lab. <laughs> you got to show uh, up. Music music PR <laughs> tour. Yeah, I can't wait. To, I hope Josh Terry starts to blend his baseball and basketball fandom into his, <laughs> his music writing. writing. And he's just you know, cloud nothings have been. Uh, they they just rented a gym in L.A. for three months, and, and they just you know two a days showing up on tour in the best musical shape of their lives. Yes, exactly. Eric Axon further this by saying. Uh, about the writing process, how Travis had a knack for having ideas and matching them with other people's ideas. He'd hear a riff or a drum beat or a new sound, and he'd pull out some guitar part or vocal line he had. Uh, this is also the time where the band started experimenting with new sounds and also with sampling, uh, rather than the fairly standard two guitars, one bass, one drummer setup of the last two records. Uh, Jason Cadell said, we bought an emu sampleizer around that emu sampler 
at around that time. Uh, it was all over Emergency and I. We sampled video games, toys, vocal samples a lot, which we would speed up and slow down all kinds of things. Uh, Emergency and I was produced by Jay Robbins of Jawbox, who has also produced records by Against Me, Jets to Brazil, Hey Mercedes, The Promise Ring, Modern Life is War, Jawbreaker, Murder by Death, and so many more. We could very easily do a Jay Robbins month, and perhaps we should. He said of the writing process, before Emergency and I, I recorded a seven inch of What Do You Want Me to Say, which we played off the top. On the eight track cassette masters, there's a little snippet of them jamming on the city, but that's just the very beginning. Joe has the beat and they just sort of have the verse part going like this really cool groove with that strummed guitar chord in the bass line. And you can hear Travis in the background going, hey, play that thing, that modified soul coughing thing you were doing. It must have been two days old. And when looking back on writing the lyrics to this album, Travis Morrison says, in quick succession, my sister, who was very young, had a kid and my dad died. In the cosmic scope of things, these things happen. It's not like I was the first person to go through these things, but it was a very intense time. And because of that, I think I was finally able to emotionally access classical real themes, like really basic life stuff. Before that, I didn't know how. And so while I think Emergency and I and many songs we're going to talk about today are a huge musical evolution of the band, and it is, but in many ways, in a bunch of songs on here, they did not leave their, let's call it, uh, claustrophobic noise rock beginnings behind, perhaps best seen on the very chaotic, wonderful song, I Love a Magician. Uh, by the way, you weren't kidding about uh, Jay Robbins. Like his Wikipedia page has a <laughs> limited, like a, like a partial producer resume, and it's insane. It's crazy. I remember I learned about him through D Plan because they always cited Jawbox as such a huge influence. Yeah, and then I listened to Jawbox. Like Jawbox are great, and I had no idea that he had produced like all of my favorite albums. 
Yeah, um, Promise Ring, Texas is the Reason, that that one Texas is the Reason album. The Actually, looking at it now, we could have used uh, him as the connection here because he's also produced for Against Me, and, and there was yep. plenty of Against Me talk last week. So uh, shout out to Jay Robbins. Maybe maybe in time, it depends how, how much we go through this essential indie uh, arc here. Uh, maybe he could push Chris Walla. For for that Hall of Fame producer spot, who knows? I I think if we wanted to, he could, just because like '90s Midwest emo is just like him. Yeah. Um. Also, Texas is the reason, and the Promise Ring are like absolute must dos at some point for me. Even yes. Jets to Brazil. There's a there's a lot he's got his hands in. All right. We do, we probably don't need to spend that much time <laughs> on Jay Robbins' other projects. I guess I'm uh, getting us derailed once again. I'm all over the place, just like I love a magician <laughs> and. Uh, you know, the sounds are the sounds are all over here. And I know that one of the things that I, I guess you you want to talk about that a little later with a different song. So I won't bring up the rhythm section now. But yeah, take us through. I, I love a magician and what basically, you know, all this experimentation here that that's very obvious as soon as you dive into the album. Uh, yeah. So Travis Morrison in that oral history said that I love a magician happened very quickly in a bizarre rehearsal space on Route 7 in Falls Church in the basement of an old office building. The ceiling was like five and a half feet off the ground. I'm not sure we were supposed to be there at all. Security guards were staring at us as we wheeled in our amps. And I remember Jason howling away on this new distortion pedal, which we wrote the song around that sound pretty much. I've seen on various retrospectives uh, that, that song and Girl O'Clock and Memory Machine described as claustrophobic, which I really like because I think that's a great way to sort of discuss the rhythm of those songs. Uh, expanding on this, Chris DeVille in a 20th anniversary article uh, of Emergency and I for Stereo Gum said the ensuing album demonstrates how resoundingly right things can go when you forge into the unknown. Sometimes it does so by simply rendering the ragtag chaos of early dismemberment plan more vividly. Squalls of noise and a stuttering drumbeat keep Memory Machine feeling like a nervous breakdown. The claustrophobic sensation returns on I Love a Magician and Girl O'Clock. Blitzkrieg laments about modern love or lack thereof. If I don't have sex by the end of the week, Morrison stutters on the ladder, I'm going to die. The apocalyptic funk punk of eight and a half minutes too could have been a holdover from Is Terrified. How upset were you when eight and a half minutes was not actually eight and a half minutes long and it was only three minutes? <laughs> uh, I was fine with it only because of how it sounds. Yeah. I, I false feel like the only false advertising though for the long song guy. I feel like they only have they only have one song that's longer than five minutes. So I was like, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine with me. Just making sure you're okay (laughs) with it. And we don't we don't have to take a, you know, eight and a half minutes out to to slander the false advertising. I feel like if it was another band that I didn't like as much, I would have a problem with it. That's fair. But I'm like, no, you know what? They can do it. It's fine. All right. I'll stop. uh, I won't stop interrupting. (laughs) I'm going to derail you at another point. You keep saying you're going to stop. You know, you're not going to. Yeah. I mean, it's a research heavy episode. I feel like I need to give you a breather every once in a while. You know, look, I appreciate it, which is what's important. Emergency, as I said earlier, was originally meant to be released on Interscope. Uh, We'll get into why it was not soon, but the advantage of recording on Interscope is the money allowed the band to record at a real studio, Water Music Studios in Hoboken, New Jersey. 
according to Jason Cadell, there was a fair amount of excitement in signing to Interscope because it allowed us to record at a nice studio for three weeks, which was amazing. Before, we just kind of smushed into inner ear studios, both physically smushed and also smushed time-wise, having to rush through stuff. Uh, Eric Axelson described the studio as being in an industrial area of Hoboken. In the main buildings where the studio is, there's one big room and a control room. Also, we stayed there. You would go outside around this little walkway and go up some stairs, and you're in an apartment with five or six bedrooms, a big living room and kitchen and cable TV. And living in the studio allowed the band for a lot of downtime, but also allowed for a lot of the experimentation that happened on the record. A lot of this experimentation was done around the band's keyboard sound in which they brought in some new keyboards because their old ones sucked. Uh, Travis Morrison said, I remember a lot of experimentation happening with our keyboard sound. We were addicted to some trashy keyboards that did not sound good when recorded. It was fun in a basement show, but it sounded bad in the studio. So we spent a lot of time experimenting and I was uptight about it. Like that's the machine that makes the magic, right? I was worried about losing that because there's a symbiotic relationship between musician and device and creativity. But that being said, it sounded like shit. So we had to do something. (laughs) Uh, The album was actually had two producers Uh, alongside Jay Robbins was also Chad Clark, who said that of the keyboard experimentation that on spider in the snow, the strings in that song come from a Casio keyboard. And there was a kind of cheap readiness that evoked a string section, but wasn't exactly a string section. I thought we should bring in an orchestra or at least bring a Mellotron and express the fact that we had access to more tools and textures. We argued pretty intensely about it, but that song wouldn't have the right emotion without the ratty, crappy tin foily keyboard sound. And to give you an idea of that crappy keyboard, <laughs> sound here is a clip from spider in the snow the only thing worse than bad memories is no memories at all from the age of 20 to 22 our far friends of these names I can recall And as I would walk down K Street to some temping job This winter froze the life out of fall Yeah, I must have been having a ball Yeah So, Jake, in the week that leading up to this recording session, uh, you posted a Dismemberment Plan track on your Instagram story with the caption, best song ever, with a question mark. Now, I was walking around, I was doing what I do in one of my walks with with the album uh, the other day in my prep, and I couldn't remember which song you had posted, just I could 
just picture the uh, very great album art. And I was trying to I was like, okay, let me try to guess. I'll listen through the album and I will guess and then I'll go back and look at Jake's Instagram story and try to try to see if I was right. Uh, I thought it would be Spider in the Snow. I was wrong. (laughs) I mean, it's a fair guess and also not that far off. This is kind the song that I post we're going to talk about next. Uh, But this was the second Spider in the Snow was the second Dismemberment Plan song I heard. And I would say this is the one that really cemented them as like a band for me. Uh, I was so blown away by the first song heard by them, which we're about to talk about, that I was kind of like, okay, but what else? And then I heard this. I was like, oh, all right. This is amazing. People seem to agree with me uh, that were involved in making it. Axelson said of writing the song, I remember having the riff and Joe and I were playing in straight four, like a Motown thing. And Travis said, cut the beat off at the end of the phrase. And suddenly the song was there. Jay Robbins said of the song, I remember hearing Spider in the Snow at a show around that time and thinking, I can't believe I know the people who wrote this. And I think Spider in the Snow is also a good place to start talking about the rhythm section of this band being Axelson and Easley, which for my money are the best rhythm section in indie rock ever. I'm including like Radiohead in that. Uh, I think this song and back and forth and like their entire discography highlight how, not only how important the rhythm section are to this band, but just how ridiculously talented they are. I think a lot of their songs are driven by the rhythm section. And I also think not to get too far ahead, but their reunion album, Uncanny Valley was kind of lukewarmly received when it came out. And I think a big reason for that is that I think the rhythm section is kind of muted in the mix on that album, because when I saw them in New York touring that record and you had, and it, what the rhythm section was all the way forward and you had the loud, powerful drums and the loud bass, all of those songs at Uncanny Valley have a completely different feel to them and a totally different life. And all of a sudden like, oh, this song's amazing. And it completely changed the way I listened to that record. And uh, there's like on Internet Archive, there at least used to be, I don't know if there still are, but there used to be like hundreds of dismemberment plan bootlegs. Uh, so you can go find that if you want to see what I mean. But uh, yeah, Eric Axel and Jason Easley, again, for my money, the best rhythm section in indie rock. Do you do you have much? Did you come across much on in terms of like what the songwriting flow was for them? Like like because these sound like they would have been very complicated to come together. And and my gut was that like the lyrics came last because everything else was so complex. It kind of like I'm not entirely sure, but from what I can tell is that it kind of sounds like it came from all over. Like Travis just writes all these words, but also he, as they pointed out, he has this way of like hearing the song and knowing what goes with what. Or sometimes like with I Love a Magician, it was just a guitar squeal that they sort of built the song around. Uh, It doesn't sound like it was built around the rhythm section so much which is interesting, but it does sound like it was just like built around an idea from one of them. And they went from that. I know that uh, when they were writing uncanny Valley that came out of just rehearsal jams. Cause apparently they had no interest in making a reunion record, but then as they were rehearsing for their reunion tour, they were just jamming in the rehearsal space. And that just turned into how they wrote their songs. And apparently that's how they wrote a lot of their stuff. So it sounds pretty equal division of labor, but 
they sound just like really talented guys who hear one thing and they're like, okay, we'll build a song around that now, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of the way it has to go when, uh, it's that, I guess, complex is the, uh, yeah. is the word for it. In terms of the rhythm section sound on this album, uh, Eric Axelson said that Jay suggested I play through a Marshall four by 12, like Lemmy from Motorhead. At the time, I loved drum and bass and dance music and reggae and these very low bass sounds. But the reality is we played this really fast frenetic music. So the tone didn't make sense with our all over the place playing. So we tried a guitar amp with another output to get this low end and it worked out. But it's kind of weird because when you hear the record, it's not actually my normal sound. This sort of production and these ideas and the two producer team caused some friction in recording. Easily described it by saying, being cuckoo and not wanting to hurt anyone's feelings, we decided to have two producers. Chad and Jay had a tough time managing their relationship, and I don't think any of us made that any easier. It was kind of the passive-aggressive Olympics at the beginning, but we got it sorted out by the end. And Chad Clark would say, our division of labor was that Jay ended up being the person who was focused on raw mechanics, making sure that the band was playing in time, making sure that we were taking tech seriously at a certain level, and that we weren't making a ramshackle low-budget record, which was welcome. My role was pursuing a widescreen feel, pushing things far out and using the studio as an instrument. It ended up being a comfortable scenario for me, playing the Brian Eno role. Jay Robinson, on the other hand, I had to be the bad cop who was there to remind everybody that they weren't playing together, that they were speeding up or slowing down. We were doing things like mapping out click track tempos and trying to get them to rehearse with a click track and being angst ridden about whether that was the right thing to do or not. However, all this tension and experimentation created some of these crazy, in, like amazing songs. And this is the point where I'm going to talk about the song that I've alluded to a bunch. <laughs> that was the first song of theirs I heard. That the, the first best time I heard. Period. The, the best song, period. The first time I heard this song, I think I listened to it on repeat for about 35 minutes. And it's only a three minute song. It's just one of those like big, big song moments for me. To me, this song is a perfect mix of what Dismemberment Plan is, are, and should be. The lyrics, the rhythm section, the synth bass, the drum beat, it's all there. It's perfect. Or as someone I saw on the R Emo Reddit call it, the peak of indie rock. Uh, I don't know where they fit in R Emo, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> or as Christoville said in that Serogum article, few songs can match the tingle-inducing power of surging synth rocker The City when Morrison raises his voice at the end to proclaim, all I ever say now is goodbye. It was basically all my friends eight years early and will leave you every bit as wrecked. So this is, in my opinion, maybe the greatest indie rock song of all time. This is The City. Where I live, but I've 
never felt less at home So I'm not unsympathetic I see why you left There's no one to know There's nothing to do The city's been dead Since you've been gone Well, Jake, while I I don't know that I will agree that it's the best uh, indie rock song of all I said time. Maybe. And as I we'll said s- maybe. I know. And, and <laughs> as we'll see in our in our next segment, uh, maybe I don't even agree. It's the it's the best song on this album. Uh, however, it's a, a very, very good song. And it got them um, some pretty big touring. I mean, not just this song, but the whole album got them some pretty big touring opportunities, uh, but not before some label drama. Right. Yeah, so though this would end up being one of the most successful, well-received indie albums of all time, not successful commercially, but critically, the release of the album started by being dropped by Interscope. Uh, Jason Cadell said that Kim was managing us at the time, and a few months after the album finished, suddenly she couldn't get anyone from the label on the phone anymore. Uh, Travis Morrison would follow this up by saying, a friend of ours worked in Interscope's PR department and told me of an epic meeting where they went through the list of all the bands on all the major labels. They were trying to figure out who signed who. They got to our name and there was silence. No one spoke up, including the person who signed us. I think they may have been trying to do this to us a favor. And so because of all this label drama, uh, the album was held up for release by almost a year. Uh, in this year, the band just went on tour for the whole year. And then in 1999, while on tour, the band got the call that they'd finally been dropped by Interscope, which according to Easley, they all cheered when they received the news. After all that, with Interscope, the album ended up just being released on DeSoto, just like the first two. Then the release of Emergency and I sort of made for some interesting tours and shows i feel like dismemberment plan are a band that really sort of the connection between crowd and band and what concerts can be is always an interesting thing for them uh jessica hopper who was the band's publicist at the time turned a chicago show on the emergency tour into a dance party typing up rules for dancing and posting them on the doors with as big posters the show ended with audience members doing the worm and dancing on stage This also led to the tradition of having the entire crowd jump on the stage during the Ice of Boston, which started a Cleveland show on this tour and continued for literally every show for the rest of the band's career. Also, when the band got home from the first Emergency and I tour, they had an email waiting for them, asking them if they would like to open for a little band called Pearl Jam in Europe. Oh, Pearl Jam, our, our yeah. friend Jonah's band. <laughs> <laughs> the Regrettables cover band, Pearl Jam. <laughs> Eric Alexson said that we played some club shows in Germany before that, so we literally went from playing for 50 kids in Nuremberg to 15,000 people at the first Pearl Jam show in Prague. I hadn't had stage fright in years, but when the lights went down and their stage manager said, you're on, I went totally numb. 
Travis Morrison would say, I opened my mouth to sing the first song and this weird croaking sound came out. I was so nervous. I couldn't believe how many people were looking at us. Although the previous night I drank seven shots of absinthe. So maybe that didn't help. (laughs) Uh, All right, Jake. Well, as much as I would love to hear more Pearl Jam and absinthe stories from the road, we got to take a break. And after that, we will talk about the reception to Emergency and I and how it's become... 20 plus years later, uh, held up as one of the indie rock uh, essential albums, as it were, as well. We're going to get into our, uh, our own takes and rankings after this. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, Jake. So you know, I think we know that this album's held in, in pretty high regard. But give us the give us the rundown of the immediate reception, and you know, I'm sure you have some. I'm sure you have lots of bands that we don't have time for uh, about just how much the dismemberment plan meant to them. Uh, Yes. So as you said, this is one of the most well-received indie albums ever. Uh, It has a five out of five from All Music and Consequence of Sound. The original pressing of the album got a 9.6 from Pitchfork, and the 2011 reissue received a perfect 10. Uh, It has five out of five from the Rolling Stone Albums Guide, five out of five from Tiny Mixtapes, and an A- from The Village Voice. Guild Magazine said that it's the Dismemberment Plan's landmark masterstroke, still cited by many bands and critics as the turning point in the evolution of indie rock. It was named the best album of 1999 by Pitchfork and ranked number 16 on their top 100 albums of the 90s list, with William Morris writing, The album's lyric book reads better than half the modern volumes on my bookshelf. Modern R&B should have as much rhythm. Modern rock should have as much balls. Pitchfork also ranked The City as the 64th best song of the 90s. Uh, As I said, the album was re-released on vinyl in 2007 on Barsook Records, uh, which spawned a tour and sort of this reunion of the band. Uh, Eric Axelson told Treblezine about the reissue. People had asked about it or suggested it over the years. This time it was Josh Medell from The Onion, who we've known for years, that got the ball rolling. Now that it's done, we're so happy with it. It sounds and looks just the way we'd imagined. Uh, as I said, this is also where that oral history is from. It's in the liner notes that Josh Medell put together. It's awesome. You should get it. It's, it's great. Uh, in 2001, the band would release Change, which is my favorite Dismemberment Plan album. I don't want to go too deep into it because I want to do an episode about it one day, <laughs> but it is significant, not significant, it's slightly mellower than Emergency and I, I would say. 
uh, but it also has some of the best songs of their career, including this one, Superpowers. Unfortunately, Jake, the superpowers in this regard uh, indicate that uh, at least one of the band members was just too damn smart to spend his time in a, <laughs> in a rock band. Yes. And uh, they, they did not last long after that one, right? No, they did not. Uh, in 2002, they put all the tracks from Emergency and I and Change on their website, encouraging fans to remix them. That led to the release of 2003's A People's History of the Dismemberment Plan, which is kind of a cool little document. Uh, in January of 2003, the band announced they were breaking up, playing their final show on September 1st, 2003, at the 930 Club in Washington. Travis Morrison would go on to release his first solo record, Travistan, which famously got a 0.0 from Pitchfork. <laughs> I actually think it's pretty good. Uh, I I love that. Not to take it back to basketball, but you know that meme of Tony Snell's stat line uh, <laughs> yeah. that Will Lou will always tweet out when, when someone takes a bad loss. <laughs> you know, thirty eight minutes, zero point zero six zero rebounds. It's kind of become this like notorious review in Pitchfork lore because like they really just gave it a zero because it's the guy from Dismemberment Plan and it wasn't Dismemberment Plan record. Sort of uh, on that. Travis has said about it, I got the sense they thought I was a rock star and they wanted to take me down a peg, but I don't think it occurred to them that the review could have a catastrophic effect. Up until the day of the review, I'd play a solo show and people would be like, that's our boy, our eccentric boy. Literally, the view changed overnight. I could tell people were trying to figure out if they were supposed to be there or not. It was pretty severe how the mood changed. The review isn't the story, the reaction to it is. The seriousness with which everyone takes pitchfork is kind of mind boggling, which we could do a whole episode on that idea. I feel but like we've done 71 episodes of a <laughs> podcast on that idea. I mean, point. what I would say 15 of the episodes we've done had a shot at pitchfork in there somewhere. So fair point. Travis would go on to form Travis Morrison Hellfighters uh, and would release the album All Y'all in 2007, which is actually fantastic. Check it out if you want. 
Uh, Eric Axelson would go on to start the band Maritime with members of The Promise Ring, who have some very good albums. And to the point you were alluding to earlier about a member of the band being very smart, Jason Easley would go to work for literally NASA as a robotics demonstrator and test engineer, which I guess explains why he's a good drummer. I don't know, but has to be the first person we have discussed in 71 episodes that works for NASA. Yeah, the first (laughs) rocket scientist, probably. Yeah, I think so. Uh, The band would play a one-off reunion show in 2007, which was a charity show for J. Robin's son, but stated they would not be getting back together. However, as I said earlier, they would reunite for a tour behind the vinyl reissue of Emergency and I in 2011, touring Japan and the States and playing Pitchwork Festival and the Roots Picnic. They would continue jamming and playing for the next few years, eventually releasing Uncanny Valley in 2013. Uh, As I said, that record was only moderately well-received, but also, as I said, I'm convinced that is entirely because of the production and also the mile-high expectations of a new Dismemberment Plan record. But I would say there are some great Dismemberment Plan songs on that record, Uh, and they also did a great Tiny Desk show uh, for it, which I know is all the rage right now. So uh, that's a cool one to check out. Uh, They haven't really been active since then, their last show being played in 2014, but they are the band that every day, uh, if we if there's one thing this show has done, it has caused bands to reunite. So I am hoping that our doing this episode will cause another dismemberment plan mm-hmm. reunion. Although we we kind of lost that momentum when the whole pandemic thing happened, and then yeah, the the postal service did that fake out get back together. It's true. It's true. Jerk. Well, Although we, we, I mean, we it worked for run. Bright Eyes. That was in the right. That was yeah. in all of this. Yeah. Avril's so, uh, still making new music. I don't know. We can get there, maybe. We'll I'm holding out hope. I'm holding out hope. All right, uh, Jake, I believe we're at the point where we have to rank some songs. Do we not? We do. We do. Uh, before we do that, uh, quick question for you. Can you or do you have much of a take on the rankings of the other Dismemberment Plan albums? Because I I don't really. This is I have engaged with this one much more than the others. I think like obviously this is like the most important and like probably the best one. Uh Change is my favorite, but I think the Emergency and I and Change are kind of like 1A and 1B, I think when it comes to that. The other 3, I feel like if you sort of mixtaped them and like picked the best songs from each, you'd have a really great album. Uh mm-hmm. I would probably put Terrified 3rd uh, uncanny valley fourth and exclamation mark fifth but they're all great like they they're because they had such a short discography they didn't really get to make a stinker like there's a quote i didn't put in the episode where travis is talking about rem and how they have 17 albums and some are terrible but it's just fine because it's rem and who <laughs> cares but they didn't get to that point and i think that's kind of a blessing and a curse in a way yeah that's i mean that's if this has told us anything it's uh like doing this podcast is that sometimes there is no right path right like we've talked about bands that did too many albums and diluted it like that or or didn't do enough or broke up too early there's every everything is its own thing you know you know what i'm saying i do what i'm trying to say here i know exactly what you're trying to say um and in terms of you know i so i mentioned when i was going through this album like coming to it uh, differently as someone who hadn't listened to it a lot, but had listened to bands like Motion City and, and Incubus and, and The Thermals and even 
you know, on, on that track back and forth, like there's a little bit of John Sampson to it. Mm-hmm. I think um, I'm curious if you came across if you either came across bands who were like, yeah, the, the dismemberment plan was that for me. Or if you hear them in other bands uh, as well, before we get into our favorite songs here. I mean, I haven't found or I didn't find in my sort of looking like anything directly, like any bands directly saying that. But I think you can just. There's so many aspects of the band that I think uh, you can pick out, like Travis Morrison's lyrics and his like sort of inability or ability, I guess, to fit so much wordiness sort of not into the timber of the songs. Like you I think you hear that a lot in guys like Tim Casher's writing, which we talked about in our cursive episode. I think you hear it a lot now in sort of like the new wave of emo indie rock that is very wordy. This Man and Plan are a little more sarcastic and obtuse yeah. than those bands. Do you feel like, I guess, I guess looking more like early 2000s to mid 2000s stuff, do you think that, you know, the way they kind of mixed in a little more keyboard and, and like danciness to the indie, like obviously, again, I don't want to, I don't want to be like, well, Morrison loved Gladys Knight and, and he, <laughs> he dropped some hip hop in there and, and, you know, suddenly every band was doing that. Obviously it's a, it's a deeper process than that. Um, but I'm curious, do you, do you think like, you know, if you trace them ahead to a broken social scene or something like that, like, do you, do you feel it or do you see it? I don't know if I'd go to broken social scene, but I would definitely go to the sort of early 2000s dance punk scene yeah i think like when i think bands like uh the rapture and early lcd and uh chick 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 and that kind of stuff that i definitely hear a lot of this in especially especially the way that jason easley plays like a lot of 16th notes a lot of sort of off time drumming uh you hear i think you hear a lot of that in those kind of bands yeah that makes sense. Uh, I will stop putting you on the spot with questions that I don't know <laughs> if you had in your notes or not. Uh, what we'll do now, Jake, is uh, I will put you on the spot for a question. I know you have a ready to go answer for uh, let's talk favorite songs on Emergency and I. I'm going to go first since you carried the bulk of this one. The reason that I thought Spider in the Snow was maybe the song that you called the best song, uh, period, was maybe selfishly because it's my favorite song (laughs) on the album uh we don't agree that's that's poor logic on my part since we don't often agree on the best song on an album so for me to assume that my favorite was your favorite uh was you know there's a logical fallacy there uh i have spider in the snow at number one i had the city number two and then i went eight and a half minutes and life of possibilities Uh, i do think spider in the snow and the city are like a clear delineation as my two favorites on the album and then after that you could make a case for like five or six songs yeah i have no idea how to rank the song on this record if I'm being honest uh, I mean you I, called the city the best other, other than song. other than the city the city's number okay. one and then I think I have back and forth at number two and then for three it's one of spider in the snow you are invited or a gyroscope I think so I think the one thing that's easy about that then is uh, the city's going on the mixtape either way I think it's gotta Yeah, I think so, too. The City from Dismemberment Plan goes on the mixtape. This is the part of the podcast, Jake, where we would like to thank Jonathan Drake. Uh, Jonathan's one of our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Columbia House Party. We appreciate 
all the continued support, all the chatter in the Discord, all the engagement on social. Um, I don't mean that in a I'm a corporate robot checking engagement way. I mean it in uh, this podcast would be 71 episodes in, probably boring to do without the community that supports us. So thank you to Jonathan and thank you to everyone over at patreon.com slash Columbia House Party. We'd also like to thank producer Dylan. I think this was a cleaner record than usual, but it's running a little long. So Dylan's got some work ahead of him. Uh, we This podcast would not be nearly as well received as it is uh, without Dylan helping shape Jake and Mai's rambling and occasional Jake and Mai, Jake and I. Emergency and I has me all messed up on grammar here, Jake. Uh, so I will say also, Jake, thank you to you for uh, a very well-researched episode. It was fun to hear a lot about this, especially um, from my perspective, being newer to the band and not having experienced a lot of their history. That was a fun one. You did a great job. I, I know I set the stakes really high out of the gate, but you uh, you met you met it. Flying colors, Jake. <laughs> thank you. Now, Jake, we just finished talking about the Dismemberment Plan's third album, which uh, many would argue is their best album. You certainly sound like you would. I would. It's the one I'm most familiar with. Uh, We're going to transition here to another artist who many say uh, had their best album at their third album. Best album so far at their third album. Uh, We have to change course a little bit from what we expected to do here. Uh, I've just gotten a little too swamped around the trade deadline and with moving and stuff like that. So what we are going to do is we're going to reach back and we're going to take a bonus episode that we did for Patreon supporters way back when, and we're going to put it on the main feed and we're going to connect it through this being, you know, if you go to Rate Your Music, there is, I mean, you could find any argument you want on Rate Your Music. It's basically a a pre- I guess like a preconceived spinoff of this show and in its Discord. Casey Musgraves and Dismemberment Plan both identified as uh, groups whose best album was their third album. Uh, I guess in Casey's case, that depends on if you count A Very Casey Christmas as a uh, proper album or, or a, a side piece. Either way, Golden Hour is, I think, the one everyone is talking about. We're not going to talk about Golden Hour, though. Um, as per a Patreon vote way back when, we are going to talk about a different Casey Musgraves album next week.